I'm Austin Lugo. I'm Andrew Harp. This is With Nothing to Say. Let's talk about The American Friend. Before we get into The American Friend, next week we are going to be watching The Holy Mountain. We are always on the lookout for genres of films, types of films that we haven't watched before. And we realized that we have watched no Spanish-speaking films in our entire podcast filmography. So we tried to fill up that hole with this film. This is a film you have seen before. Is there any particular reason you picked this film, Andrew? Well, we were having a hard time picking a movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, Holy Mountain is a good movie that uh, everyone should watch and that I wouldn't mind watching it again. I wouldn't mind watching it several more times. It's very good. I'm very excited for that experience. I'm sure it'll be a grand time. But this week, we are watching, or rather, we just watched Vim Vendor's The American Friend. Andrew, you've seen two Vim Vendor's films, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I've seen one of his features, Paris, Texas, which I watched that in college, so it's been a few years. But um, I mean, that's like one of the greatest movies ever made. And I've seen his documentary, uh, Buena Vista Social Club, which is the documentary, of course, that he made about the album, which is also pretty good. So yeah, I mean, like I've seen some of his works, but he has like a bunch of features and I've only seen that one. So oh, this is probably like the second, maybe third feature I've seen by him. I too have seen very few of his work. For some reason, I always get him confused with Werner Herzog, maybe it's just because they're both German filmmakers. I get him confused with uh, Jonathan Demi for some reason. Yeah, I think thematically, or maybe there's just something about German filmmakers of this time, because all of the German filmmakers I've watched of like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they all have a very specific type of filmmaking techniques, and the themes that they cover are very similar. And maybe it's just because Germany at this point in time was in a very complicated spot with the Berlin Wall and all that kind of stuff. But before this film, I too had only seen two Wim Wenders films. I had seen Paris, Texas, like you have seen. And I saw The Wings of Desire, which as I've mentioned before, I've seen that film like six or seven times. An incredibly beautiful film, extremely well-written film. So I was super excited to get into this experience you're probably getting them confused too because vendors and herzog i mean they both they still work and they work for several decades and they both made a lot of features and documentaries like they're both known for their features and documentaries so vim vendors the american friend starts off with the great dennis hopper our american friend easily one of the greatest if not the greatest like american actor that ever worked so incredible. In preparation for this film, I watched some of the extra stuff that the Criterion Collection always gives, some of the interviews that they do with actors and that sort of thing. And one of the interviews was with Vin Benders himself. And he talks about the experience of working with Dennis Hopper. And Dennis Hopper actually wasn't his first choice. His first choice was John Huston, but John Huston immediately shut it down. It's like, I don't want to do this. I, I have no interest in it. And so Vin Vendors is looking around and someone suggests that he go and meet Dennis Hopper. And at the time, Dennis Hopper had just finished shooting Apocalypse Now. Yeah, which that shoot was over almost 300 days, I believe. And famously, an awful shoot. Just a terrible experience. I've watched Out of Darkness. Wait, no. Yeah, with the documentary about the, the, the production of Apocalypse Now. 
I don't think it's called Out of Darkness, Heart of Darkness, yeah. And uh, the documentary about Apocalypse Now, like just mostly just like the production and shooting that they did in the Philippines and stuff. And in that movie, Dennis Hopper plays a uh, like a photographer and has a, the funniest cut ever because they're showing behind the siege footage of Dennis Hopper and it's just behind the scene footage, but he acts like his character in the movie. Like he's really like hopped up on something. Like he really is on drugs. You can tell. And then it cuts to Dennis Hopper, like in the nineties or whatever, when they made the movie and he's totally chill, just sitting in his chair. Like, yep, that was crazy. I was not doing well (laughs) (laughs) because like, I think during this time, I think he was heavily on drugs and just kind of temperamental. And then I think later, I think he was able to get clean. And then he had his like kind of big come up, you know, where he was in like Boo Velvet and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, Vim Vendors describes meeting Dennis Hopper for the first time. They'd already started shooting for two weeks. And what's interesting about this film is our two main characters, the American friend played by Dennis Hopper and our protagonist, who's, I can't remember the name of the actor at the moment. Bruno Gaines. Yes, Bruno Gaines. This is one of Bruno's very first films. So he's a very new actor at this time. He hasn't done a whole lot of work. He's extremely prepared and ready. And Dennis Hopper, upon first meeting Vim Vendors, is high as fuck, as Vim Vendors describes it. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) He's still in whatever character he's playing from Apocalypse Now. He is not in a good place at all. He's two weeks late for the shoot. And he is just acting like the shittiest human being on earth, just in a really bad place. And then Benders is absolutely just pissed off because the two actors at first do not get along at all because they're just butting heads. They're very different people. And they get into this huge fight on set. You know, they're throwing punches at each other. <laughs> I mean, really just going at it. So then Benders kicks them off. You know, he shuts down the film for a couple of days. And I guess that night, the two of them... Dennis Hopper and Bruno go and just get absolutely wasted and become the best of friends. And I guess for whatever reason, that's basically like the movie. It like completely makes sense. That's probably the best part of the movie is their dynamic and their friendship, their quote unquote friendship. It's the best part of the movie for sure. They're so good uh, together and individually. Absolutely. So you got Dennis Hopper who is selling forged paintings. Yeah. He's rich as fuck. Well, they're not forged. They're kind it's weird because but the painter is the actual like original painter, but he's pretending to be dead. And so he paints his own paintings and then sells them to rich people. Which that whole plot line's very weird and strange. I don't quite understand why. I guess the painter pretends to be dead because he makes more money that way. If he's dead, then like Vivi is still living making paintings. I didn't realize that he was that he was pretending to be dead. I thought it was just like a very good like forger. That's what I thought at first too. I actually only learned that from the documentary that I watched because Vin Vendors mentions that. Maybe it's more described in the book than in the movie. Probably. Maybe the movie is more. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't really matter either way, to be honest. No. The point is the guy's forging paintings. And the other thing about this movie is that the, that, that forger is played by Nicholas Ray, who he he's like in the movie for like two minutes, but it's like, oh yeah, it's Nicholas, right? Cause he's got his like eye patch and everything going on. The movie is actually like, the movie's kind of weird because all the actors are directors. Very famous directors. Yeah. Including Dennis Hopper. 
Gerard Blaine, who I think is like the French guy who hires Jonathan and Samuel Fuller's in it as well. Nicholas Ray. And then like a bunch of other, all the other like European guys too, that we see like more or less are also all directors. If you go on their letterbox page and you click on them, it's like, oh, they've made like a dozen movies or something like that. It's very strange, but uh, it's a funny detail. Supposedly the reason Vim Benders hired a bunch of directors for the film is they didn't hire a casting director and he didn't know any actors. So he just hired because like Samuel Fuller, and Nicholas <laughs> Ray were just close friends of his. He's like, fuck, I just like I know these people. And I mean, they're technically actors, too, even though they're Samuel Fuller is in a bunch of movies. I mean, I would say Samuel Fuller is an actor. Yeah. But Nicholas Ray is interesting because Nicholas Ray wasn't originally supposed to be in the film. That whole part wasn't originally in the book. At least his character wasn't. I think that plot was, but Nicholas Ray's character wasn't. And he wrote, wrote a bunch of stuff for him because I guess Nicholas Ray was in an extraordinary amount of debt and like he couldn't afford to pay his own rent. And so Vim Benders just felt bad for him. He's like, that was probably his apartment. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Very dingy apartment. <laughs> they clearly filmed everything there too, all of his stuff within like a day or something like that too, probably within half a day. Because like Dennis Hopper, he sees him and then he goes to Europe and then he comes back. But it's, yeah, it's like, they're, it's clearly the same day. It's, it rocks. So you got Dennis Hopper who's trying to sell these forged paintings and at this auction, which they just run the whole auction. Like they just start from the beginning and just run the whole fucking thing, which I love. Very slow, very intimidating. The music, the score behind this, there'll be like very intense score when seemingly very little is going on. Like it kind of feels like people are just standing around, but that score just puts this tension behind everything that just feels, ugh. And they're going through the whole auction and that's when Dennis Hopper meets Bruno. Uh, Jonathan. Who builds frames for a living and they have like a shaky introduction where like first of all yeah like dennis hopper he's tom ripley he's like from the books yeah and uh, they're in hamburg i think the movie mostly takes place in hamburg but they go to a bunch of different places yeah and they like meet each other and this like interaction that they have is kind of like sort of the center of the movie right where like jonathan he refuses to shake tom's hand because he's basically says like oh i've heard of you before he also says out loud to during the auction, like, that's a forgery. Like, there's something off about it. And he's like, yeah, I've heard of you before and refuses to shake his hand. And then, like, Tom also talks to a guy and he's like, yeah, and, you know, Jonathan, he's got a he's got a blood disease. He's going to die soon. Like, he's not doing well. And he's like, hmm, okay. And then they don't they don't meet each other again for a while. It really focuses heavily on Jonathan for sure. And then he gets like a letter, right? Jonathan does. That's one of the things that at least happens a little bit after their meeting is that he receives a letter from like a, someone in New York, right? I think so. That's like, I'm so sorry about your blood disease. Like, I'm sorry that you're going to die soon. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, he's been told that he's like fine for the most part. He has a blood disease, but it's clear that like Tom is like spreading rumors that he's doing very badly. And Jonathan, of course, is completely obsessed with figuring out yeah. this like it, it consumes his life it's a big part of the movie yeah and i clearly tom just knows how to manipulate people and kind of get right. what he wants out of things like he knows how much this will just consume jonathan it becomes his every waking moment and every conversation he has with his wife which he doesn't have a lot she's the only woman in the film which vim vendors talks about because of course the book is written by a woman and Vim Benders is fascinated by the way she explores men and how masculine 
the world of this film is and the book is and what a few conversations he has with his wife his wife's like you really need to stop obsessing about yeah. this disease thing. like you're you're freaking everyone out you got you got a son yeah she gets uh, pretty upset in the movie which is fair because he is being pretty obsessive about it yeah he's like kind of freaking out a little bit too much about the letter and everything and of course he's obsessing about like the rumor but then at the same time he's also obsessing over the fact like what if it's true what if i've been lied to into thinking that like things are okay but actually like i have no time left and actually my family will be left like with no money or support because i'm gonna die soon so he's also obsessing over that like what if the rumor is true what if it's not a rumor and it's actually like the truth so like there's the scenes where like he goes to his doctor and he's like hey is everything good and the doctor's like yeah no you're fine it's okay bro he's like uh, okay like he still doesn't like 100 trust him yeah like you said he's just completely obsessive and yeah it's such a big part of the movie <laughs> it helps that jonathan is played by bruno Gaines because he's so good he has a really great eyes he has like very dark powerful eyes and he's a very vulnerable actor and so the character is very vulnerable and like i don't know he's really fucked up the performance is incredibly raw and utilizing this idea that he's going to be dead soon we meet the mysterious frenchman who is like raul he's a criminal wants people killed i don't think they ever explain why these people are killed or for what purpose they're like mafia people I, f I think they use the word mafia it doesn't really matter it's just kind of like he's like a french guy and they want to kill these other criminal guys and tom owes him i think too and i guess his idea is that instead of hiring a professional killer an assassin yeah. of sorts he wants to hire this guy <laughs> Because no one would ever suspect that this man would murder these random people. It's kind of like a strangers on a train situation. Like these people right. don't know each other. There's no reason they would do it. And he's yeah. utilizing the fact or. Which also strangers on a train written by Patricia Highsmith. Oh shit. I did not know that. She really does it all. huh? Yeah. She's, she's awesome. She's a really good writer. So Raul utilizes the idea that this man is going to die of this rare blood disease. And he's like, Hey, I'll give you some money. You can have for your family. You kill these people, and even if you get caught, which you won't, like, it doesn't matter. You're going to be dead, like, in a couple of years anyways, so who gives a shit? Yeah, that's the other thing on top of it is, like, all the murder stuff. And, of course, like, you know, Ripley kind of pawning off the work also, like, alleviates his death with Raul as well. This movie is very, like, globetrotting. There's a lot of different language is being spoken, French, German, English. They're in New York City. They're in France. They're in Germany, of course. And yeah, so Jonathan, he goes to uh, France to do the job. This whole section of the movie where Jonathan goes to France to commit the first murder, that whole section is like very good where he goes to the doctor and everything. And he's like, and then he goes to the train station. It's very, very, very good. Oh my God. The train station scene is rocks. absolutely incredible. I mean, every beat of that, it just has the most no perfect music. of pacing. Yeah. It's just this guy following this other guy around and it's very clear <laughs> that he has like no idea what he's doing like he's not a trained assassin he has no idea if i had to kill someone in a public space like this that's how i would honestly do it <laughs> i found it very relatable because he like he's trying to like work up the nerve to do it right yeah because you're following him the whole time while he's following the guy to kill just a guy whatever and there are plenty of opportunities that he could do it and he misses quite a few but it's because he's like trying to work up the nerve to do it there's no perfect opportunity but he's trying to like <laughs> also find like the perfect opportunity as well to like murk this guy and i don't know i found that very like relatable 
like the way that he kind of like moves around and follows him and just kind of it's kind of like i don't know it's so nerve-wracking to watch this whole experience and there's this great little tiny scene right when he gets into france he's on one of those people movers and at the end of the people mover a guy just like trips off of the people mover and it kind of feels like this one-off weird thing and i couldn't understand why that's in there like i don't why would they keep that there's there's no reason for it but of course when he finally does murder the man it's on an escalator and the guy falls off the escalator or rather is killed on top of the escalator it's a weird little parallel that i don't quite understand fully but i love it like i love that little just tiny little detail of which they're like kind of suggesting that this is going to happen even though it's it's just like this tiny little thing and the whole chase is so tense and nerve-wracking because you're like you're terrified that this man's gonna get caught because he's not doing a good job at all you think he's gonna get caught too after the fact because they show like all the security cameras yeah like he looks directly into the cameras so you think like oh my gosh he's done for they're gonna get him but he doesn't the police don't get him in trouble for some reason like it just doesn't there's absolutely no problem with police or yeah there's like really no problems with police i guess europe is just different I guess like I don't know like he's not a French guy like he's not a French citizen maybe because he lives somewhere else I don't know maybe it's a little bit more difficult to search out if you're like a an immigrant he, he just doesn't get in trouble with any like law enforcement which I like I like that there's no like you could really like fuck up a movie like this if you added like a separate like law enforcement thing where you add like a cop character or something who's like we gotta find these guys that would be so super corny if they added it into this movie but in this movie it's all about like the criminals and it just completely focuses on them yeah having any sort of law enforcement involvement would have slowed down the pacing of this movie because i think one of the best parts of this film is just the absolute incredible pacing i mean every moment of this film just feels exactly right for what should be happening it never feels too slow it never feels too fast everything feels just so perfectly paced i mean down to the single frame just the way the camera moves and the way we move with it And the way we follow these people, it all just feels almost like a puzzle in which each piece just perfectly fits with the next. And so without the involvement of the police or anyone, he basically gets away scot-free. He's like, I did it. But unfortunately, according to Raul, the job is not done. He thought it was a one-off thing, but there's going to be a, a second murder in which he has to commit. I think too around this time you have like Ripley, he's in New York City. He lives in Hamburg, but he's in New York. You have that random part where, like, I think he starts to feel bad about, like, I don't know, fucking over Jonathan's life, <laughs> over, you know, him being mean to him. And you have that crazy shot, too, where, like, he's, like, walking, like, on the uh, interstate wall, like, in yeah. New York City, and it, like, zooms, and you're in, like, an apartment that has, like, all of the criminals that the French guy wants dead. Which that reminded me of something. I was trying to think what it reminded me of. Oh, he does that in Buena Vista Social Club where like uh, uh, he'll be following a musician walking around and then it'll stop and then it'll zoom into the background and then you have the set other subject that he's talking with, which is like another musician or whatever. I think he likes to do shit like that where you kind of like people are closer than they think, you know, kind of a small world type thing. But Ripley, Tom, he, uh, he goes back to Germany. I believe it's between these two murders that Jonathan takes his wife and kid to the fairgrounds or circus or carnival, something like that. There's a roller coaster. And it's the wonderful scene because he's having like this serious conversation with his wife, but (laughs) they 
show him riding on a roller coaster. They basically put a camera on the front of a roller coaster. It's a beautiful shot. And they're just like zooming around like back and forth. And of course, Bruno's face, Jonathan's face is super serious. Just deadpan. Yeah, it's so funny. And that whole scene is just a beautiful and touching scene between a husband and a wife and her concern with what he seems to be doing. She doesn't know exactly, but she kind of is catching on because yeah she's getting more and more pissed off because he's like obviously hiding like some criminal behavior it's like very obvious like we like weird phone calls and stuff like that like yeah she's no dummy and yeah like tom goes back to germany and he starts to like form a friendship with jonathan like they start to actually get kind of chummy and stuff like he asks him to make some frames and things like that and he makes it and they just kind of start to form kind of like a friendship it's a very like shallow surface level friendship but they start to kind of like be chummy with each other and kind of like have some camaraderie going on yeah and i think like soon after that he has to go on a second assignment right yep and it's his second assignment on the train a long train scene Love a good train scene. Yeah, there's a lot of train shit. Yeah, it's just (laughs) Highsmith and I like the trains. And this one people are very concerned with because I think Tom's concerned about it because he's like, you need a professional for this because killing someone on a train is a very (laughs) different situation because you can't leave. Like, you can't leave the fucking train. Yeah, it's difficult. That he has to kill like two people or maybe he just has to kill one people, but he, it's in a big group. It's the same group that we saw in right. New York City. Yeah, he has to like like somehow like kill this one guy and try not to kill anyone else. And But Jonathan's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's also probably kind of like a, an excitement to it, right? I would say the movie kind of progresses in a way where the more kind of crazy shit that Jonathan does the more, I guess, exciting he finds it. So I think like he's like, yeah, I want to fucking, you know, I want I want to do it. Because he's like kind of going through like a weird, you know, health crisis. So he wants to do some exciting shit. And yeah, he's like on the train and that train, the whole, that scene is really good too, where he's trying to like find a way to kill this guy. And then Tom comes out of fucking nowhere because he fucks up. Immediately fucks up. He like, I think he has his gun in the bathroom, right? And the guy opens the door, the guy he's supposed to kill and he sees his gun. He's like, shit. He's not a trained professional in any way. Like, he's super nervous. He goes to the bathroom to play around with his gun. And, of course, the man who opens the door is the man he's going to murder. And he's like, fuck. Like, of all the people who open the door at that moment, he just couldn't lock the bathroom door. But luckily, Tom shows up at that exact moment. And there's this incredible... Yeah, so good. 10, 15 minute, maybe even 20 minute scene. I could imagine this like same kind of like scene or like dynamic or whatever. I could see this translated in like other movies. Like maybe like I could see this translated in like a really kind of not good screwball comedy from like the 2000s or 2010s. Like I could see this movie being made today with like a really bad version with like Kevin Hart and like, I don't know, Mark (laughs) Wahlberg, right? Like, you can kind of see it, you know what I mean? But, you know, Vim Vendors, you know, he doesn't use a lot of music. It's a very kind of crusty, gray, brown, dark, kind of 70s, neo-noir vibe. So there's, like, a lot of darkness going on. But, yeah, that train scene, you can see kind of, like, the 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 architecture of, like, that scene translated into, you know, like, a really shitty, like, comedy movie for Netflix about Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg or whatever. It's probably already in production. I'm sure they're making. Probably, yeah. It's probably already been made. It probably already exists. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that there's some very funny and silly moments in this, especially this scene where they're trying to murder this man and have him locked in the bathroom and people keep walking by. But 
because of the grayness of the film and because of maybe the honesty of the film Vim Vendors never makes fun of Jonathan, even though Jonathan has no idea what he's doing. And there's some absurd moments and he's doing some absurd things. Vim Vendors is very sympathetic to Jonathan. You're always on Jonathan's side and you always want to be on his side. Yeah, you feel very bad for him. And even though this is a very funny scene, you don't ever feel like laughing at him. You're the nerves, at least for me, are still very high. You're very nervous. There's like no music or anything like that. Like it's still like a very tense scene, especially like Dennis Hopper's performance. Dennis Hopper is just like he's like rolling around on the floor and he's wild. He's like off, he's the, off wall. the wall. He's so good. But like even though that performance is funny, it can be seen as funny. It also makes, I guess, the whole situation more um, unpredictable, right? Because like Tom, he's unpredictable. So it makes it more a little bit more tense. Tom is just someone who doesn't give a fuck about anything i mean he just does whatever when he goes and murders that man it's i mean i guess at this point tom's murdered a lot of people yeah he's like a murderer (laughs) like he's a professional murderer (laughs) so who cares how many people he has or continues to murder he doesn't give a shit and he does a great job i mean he murders this man he throws him out the train and then of course as they're trying to throw this man at a train another man catches them So that guy becomes part of the murder process. And they got to throw him out of the train, too. They just throw him out. It's so incredible because they get away with it. (laughs) They they just get away with it. (laughs) Again. They had that scene where like Samuel Fuller is like walking through the train to find out where the guys went. And they don't. They don't don't do anything. It's so funny to me. They just kind of get away with it. You do have that really good moment where he goes to the front of the train, Jonathan, and he like cries out of the window. He's simultaneously like excited about the whole experience, right? But he's also upset about it, right? And so he kind of like can't help but like be upset because he's not like um because he's, he's not, not like, Tom, Tom Ripley. Ripley. Yeah, he's not Tom Ripley. Yeah, he has feelings and emotions and can't just murder people in cold blood. So there's a lot of mixed emotions at that moment because, as you've pointed out, there seems to be sort of this fetish almost at this point for Jonathan for killing these people. I mean, there's no reason he has to go back and kill a second person. He's already been paid to kill a first person. And even though he still believes that he's going to die, he could very well just live the rest of his life without doing the second killing. But he finds some sort of dark joy in it. And now that he's had this bonding moment with Tom, their friendship becomes even more strangely intertwined. There's almost something sexual behind their friendship and not necessarily romantic, but there's just this underlying tension between these two characters after this moment. Because I guess when you murder someone together, there is a certain relationship that forms between two people. Yeah, this relationship, it's so good. (laughs) So after the train, they like hang out and chill, right? They like have some beers and stuff and they kind of just talk. Once again, their interactions, like, it's not like throughout the whole movie. It's more kind of their interactions are, for the most part, kind of few and far between. Once again, if we were to make the Kevin Hart, Mark Wahlberg version of this, I think the whoever's producing would be like, okay, they have to meet, but we need to have them meet as soon as possible, and they have to be together often. And the American friend is just kind of like, you know, their interactions and their meetings are more jagged. They don't happen super often. But when they do, it, it's very pleasurable. It's very fun to watch very kind of weird chemistry because the characters are so different it's a wonderful relationship and good on vim vendors for refusing to have 
just that be the crux of the film because it is such a pleasurable part of the film and whenever tom ripley is in it i mean he just truly steals the show dennis hopper can't help but be one of the greatest actors of all time so whenever he's in it he's just absolutely crushing it and yet he's really only in a couple of scenes like even though when i think of the film i think of dennis hopper and i think of those scenes of those two together i mean of the two hours they're probably only together maybe 20 or 30 minutes of the film a lot of the film is just Jonathan just trying to figure his shit out, trying to not die from his blood disease and his wife slowly catching on and eventually just realizing that Tom Ripley is the absolute worst because he is. And she's fed up with it, as she should be. Yeah, she's super pissed off. I think Jonathan is being threatened by like uh, whatever mafia guys are left the leftover people on the train like i think yeah and explodes in like a big physical altercation right where he hits her it's like very very like rough and i think after that too i think a little bit after this they go to tom's house right yeah raul confronts jonathan because raul's been threatened his house has been blown up or something like that basically the the mafia figured out that raul was tied to the killings somehow probably because of tom ripley is how they figured it out i'm guessing because the whole reason of not hiring Tom Ripley and hiring Jonathan was because Jonathan had absolutely no ties to Raul, so there's no reason that they would connect it. But when Tom Ripley got involved, the mafia realized that Raul was involved, so now Raul is absolutely pissed. And he's like, you gotta fix the situation, and Jonathan doesn't know what he's doing. So they go to Tom's house? Is that? I know they go to a house. I didn't know whose house it was. It's his mansion, right? It's his big, yeah. ugly mansion <laughs> in Hamburg. Yeah, he lives in Hamburg, and uh, yeah, it's his big, ugly mansion. And they're basically waiting to be attacked, I guess, is the plan. Because, yeah, like you said, like Raul got bombed. So they're like afraid that they are next. Because if they know who Raul is, then maybe they know who they are. So, yeah, you're right. They're kind of like hanging out there because they expect someone to show up. And it's funny because they're right. Like I said, this is very comedic. But once again, the vendor's tone makes it feel dark and sad. But yeah, like you could imagine, once again, the scene of them waiting in their big mansion, waiting for someone to show up. There's something comedic about it. And this whole scene is really good, too. You know, the action, the, the action of the movie is good. It's not too stylized. It's a very patient film in the way it shoots its action scenes. And I love the way Jonathan accidentally murders this man because the man's trying to step over like a, a ledge or like a, a sinkhole or something. And, and Jonathan just grabs his leg, pulls him down and just murders him. I mean, he hits his head and, and immediately dies. And Jonathan feels a bit guilty about it because I don't think his original intention was to <laughs> murder this man. Again, it, the, the tone is so strange because when like you and I talk about the plot or things that happen, it sounds like we're describing a comedy and it seems yeah. very comedic when we talk about it and yet in the film like it's weird and like you chuckle but it doesn't feel it's funny a strange at all. tone yeah. yeah once again it's just how the movie looks it's how the movie feels it's use of music it's use of no music it's a very darkly lit movie like this scene where they're like outside the mansion and stuff the movie feels real too it, it feels like they're in real locations it feels like yeah. in real houses and buildings and trains so i think that also adds to it as well so Jonathan murders this man and they realize that there's probably others. So the bad guys are hiding in like an ambulance, I guess. 
and in the ambulance is Samuel Fuller, a woman, and some bandaged man. Who's the bandit? Is the bandaged man supposed to be one of the people they tried to kill on the train? That's Raul. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, I I couldn't figure out who that was, but okay. <laughs> so they sneak up to the ambulance. Of course, Samuel Fuller immediately sees them because neither of them are professional criminals. I mean, I guess Tom Ripley is, but Tom Ripley isn't. Oh, yeah, he is. He has at least no qualms about killing someone. Yeah. I mean, he, he commits a lot of crimes. So I guess Tom Ripley is quite the criminal, but Jonathan isn't at all. So they immediately get caught and they just throw Samuel Fuller down a flight of stairs. I mean, Samuel Fuller just falls down a giant ass flight of stone steps and a really cool shot, which I guess Samuel Fuller requested that he shoot all of the scenes that he's in. So he directs all of those scenes. <laughs> Because, okay. of course, he does. Because he's the greatest uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> what? I, I didn't know that. That's weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I guess Vim Vendors and Sam Fuller are, like, really old friends. Because when Vim Vendors made one of his very first films, Sam Fuller was, like, one of the only people that saw it. And he kind of brought Vim Vendors under his wings. So he saw Sam Fuller as kind of like a fatherly sort of figure, a sort of mentor. So <laughs> whenever Sam Fuller is on screen, uh, Vim Vendors was just like, you know, you can direct this. Like, you just you just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Sam Fuller's like, that's awesome. Sick. So that's why you have that really cool shot, which is only like a second, maybe a couple of frames, where it's an extreme close-up of Samuel Fuller falling down the steps. Vin Vendor said he actually attached a camera to his body and, like, threw himself down a flight of stairs. It looks incredible. It's a great scene. And, and Samuel Fuller is immediately murdered. They fucking kill that guy. <laughs> I guess theoretically, all the bad, all their enemies are dead. They're dead. <laughs> they don't have any problems. They did it. They they fucking did it. I think after that, they're like, okay, what do we do now, right? And they're like, well, they they want to get rid of everything, right? They have to get rid of the car. They have to get rid of all the evidence. And so their idea is they're gonna go drive all the way to the beach. And then Jonathan's wife shows up, right? Yeah, she sure does because she's figured it out. She's she's no idiot. She realizes what's going on. And there was a scene earlier, too, where, like, she's at his frame store and she sees him being friendly with Tom. And Tom clearly has, like, a reputation. So she's like, this is not good. And, yeah, she goes to Tom's house and she's like, look, you need to go home. And he's like, I can't. Like, I have to take care of this. And then they go on a bit of a road trip. It, it feels like they drive for a while. <laughs> they make the road trip, which I think Vin Vendors is a big fan of road trips, it seems like. Paris, Texas has a road trip. It's basically one big road trip. I think he has other earlier movies that I've read about that I think are also big road trips. With only a couple of minutes left in the film, they put in a little road trip. They had to. Yeah, he had to put it in there. <laughs> they go to the beach and Tom Ripley is acting like the crazy person that he is. And he lights the car on fire. Yeah, and he's... Jonathan just fucking abandons him. Like he just He just guns it. He doesn't give a shit. Tom Ripley's left to his own demise. And Jonathan and his wife are driving away. And Jonathan's clearly having some sort of episode. He's yeah. not handling everything well. So they drive off of a dam-like thing. Yeah, it's like a wall, kind of like a... It's a slanted wall that he drives up, which like stops the water from coming down onto the road or something. I think so, yeah. yeah. And he drives up it. The car spins out really cool last second, you know, handbrake, that kind of thing. Fun little moment. And then Jonathan is dead. It's like the saddest ending of all time. It's a very sad ending. It's a really tough ending. 
Jonathan has just gone through this extremely traumatic experience. You know, he's finally done the deed, right? He's finally figured everything out. You know, he's no longer has to murder any more people. He did it. He's gotten away from Tom Ripley and he just dies from presumably the blood disease, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like his suspicions were almost correct, right? Or his worries were almost correct, right? Because he keeps being told again and again that he's okay. And I guess I think the doctors do determine like throughout the movie, like you're okay, you know, it's fine. There's one part where he goes to get a second opinion and they like forge documents to make it seem like he's not. But I guess that's the thing with like, I don't know, cancer or whatever, you know, I guess like in some cases, doctors can't really 100% determine when a person's going to go, right? And yeah, it's just a, a bad luck situation in which kind of all the pent-up excitement and you know adrenaline probably led to his uh, early demise rather than if he just kind of lived comfortably just doing all of his regular stuff hanging out with his family he probably does have a lot more money now but maybe the murders and crimes and stuff that he was committing maybe led to him dying earlier than he would have quite the tragic ending he spends the whole film obsessing about this one single thing, about this blood disease that he keeps getting different recommendations about and constantly harassing every doctor he meets. And everyone keeps telling him that you're fine, you're going to be okay. And yet in the end, perhaps and probably because he attempts to solve his own problems by (laughs) murdering all of these people, the excitement and adrenaline, as you spoke of, probably killed him. And that's it. That's how the film ends, just with Jonathan dead. It's a fitting ending for the movie just because like we talked about, the movie isn't very flashy or crazy. It's pretty low-key in terms of its editing choices. The way that it looks, there's nothing particularly like, I don't know, everything feels pretty natural. Paris, Texas is kind of like that too, if I remember correctly. So yeah, it just ends in a way that feels very ordinary. There's a car crash, but it's it's, it's nothing. I mean, he doesn't hit any other cars, and the car's still fine. And he just kind of slumps over and dies. You know, he doesn't uh, get shot. It's not like Tom comes with a vengeance. Jonathan just dies, and Tom continues to live. And that's it. You know, like there's nothing really else more to say but that. It's a very fitting ending to how the the rest of the movie is. It's a very consistent movie in terms of its style and its presentation. A truly powerful ending final thoughts andrew good movie yeah it's a it's a good uh neo-noir movie once again you know those the dennis hopper and bruno Gaines performances are amazing and the way that the movie looks i think is great it has a weird tone it's very particular there's really only like a couple elements to talk about in the movie it's not a terribly complicated movie but the emotions are complicated and it's kind of hard to discuss just because it's so complicated not in a surface level way, but in a, you know, interior way. Yeah, it's just a really solid movie. You know, just a really good 8 out of 10 solid film for sure. I adored every second of this film. I found it incredibly well written as all of Vim Vendor's films are, at least the ones I've seen. Visually extremely appealing. Some absolutely credible performances. The score, when they utilize it, is so tense. I love that they just got all of these extremely famous directors to be in the film. (laughs) It's great to see Samuel Fuller and Nicholas Ray and some of my favorite directors of all time perform in a film. The plot is insane and absurd 
And I don't think anyone could have tackled it other than Vim Vendors. I think under almost anyone else's hands, this film would have been dumb and failed. I think Vim Vendors walked a very tight rope when making this film, creating the tone necessary to explore the experiences that we as viewers have. I love this film so much, and I'm so excited to watch so many more Vim Vendors films. So I'm going to give this film a 9 out of 10. Okay. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. You can find everything I do at Austin Lugo 12 I'm on Letterboxd at Retro Andrew, R-E-T-R-0, Andrew. And you can find this podcast wherever you hear podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Theater42 or With Nothing to Say. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.